Welcome to the Valley Brook Community Church Podcast, and thank you for joining us online today. You're about to hear a sermon from our current series, The Book of Judges. In this series, we'll walk through the Book of Judges and let it shine a light into the muddy waters of human rebellion. These stories are some of the most bizarre and interesting stories found anywhere. They're not just historical curiosities, they are glimpses of humanity as applicable today as they were back then. Stories reveal a God working above and through the chaos to bring redemption. We hope you find this podcast meaningful. We'd love to hear how God is touching people's lives. Just go to our website at www.valleybrook.cc, select Contact Us, and send us an email. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all here today. Do you ever wish you were more successful? You don't need to show your hands, okay? Do you ever wish you were more successful? Do you ever wish that you had uh, more influence? Do you ever wish that you had more power? Now, look, there's nothing wrong with having those desires. Those desires in and of themselves are neutral. But what we do with those desires, if they become our focus, they can ruin our lives and our effectiveness for God. The year was 1945, and there were three energetic young men who were bursting onto the ministry scene in the United States. Each was in their mid-20s and experiencing a measure of success. Two of the three had already achieved notable influence. Chuck Templeton and Bron Clifford were called preaching dynamos. One university president, after hearing Temple preach to a crowd of several thousand, called him the most talented and gifted young preacher in the United States. In 1946, the National Association of Evangelicals published an article listing the men who had the most effective ministries in the previous five years, and Templeton and Braun were in those lists. Templeton was an evangelist for Youth for Christ, and he had a major profile in that article. Braun Clifford uh, was also believed to be someone who would greatly impact the church world. When Clifford preached at a chapel service at Baylor University, the president of the university was so awed by his preaching that he ordered that the school bells be turned off so there'd be no interruption. One author writes that at the age of 25, young Clifford touched more lives influenced more leaders and set more attendance records than any other pastor his age in American history. National leaders vied for his attention. He was tall, handsome, intelligent, and eloquent. Even Hollywood invited him to audition for a movie. It seemed he had everything. Both Templeton and Clifford started out strong. But by 1950, Templeton had left the ministry in pursuit of a career in radio and television. He eventually decided that he no longer believed in Orthodox Christianity. Clifford's story is nothing short of tragic. By 1954, he had left his wife and his two children. Alcohol had become the vice that destroyed his life. And nine years after being the most sought-after preacher in the United States, he was found dead in a motel in Texas. Now, you may be wondering who the third preacher was, who the third evangelist was. His name was Billy Graham. While Templeton and Clifford were enjoying their successes, Graham was establishing boundaries within his personal life in ministry that would ensure the longevity of what he was doing. Now, 
As a student of the Bible, I'm certain that Billy Graham was familiar with the story of Gideon from the book of Judges. We've been studying through the book of Judges this uh, past month and into this month. Uh, Gideon's service to Israel as a judge unfolds over three chapters. Uh, We've gone through chapter 6 and 7, and in chapter 6 we see the courage and the calling of Gideon. In chapter 7, we see Gideon's faith, that it was strong enough to trust God in the midst of great weakness. But today, in the last two chapters about Gideon, chapters 8 and 9, they're going to reveal a never-before-seen side of Gideon and his family. It's the dark side of Gideon. So, the first thing that I want to talk about today with regards to Gideon is this. It's, it's the seduction of success. So if we go back to uh, chapters 6 and 7, let me just recap. Uh, Gideon and his 300 soldiers have this huge battle with tens of thousands of Canaanites. All right? And in Gideon's troops' weakness... They defeat these huge armies. Why? Because they rely on God to be their strength. In their weakness, they discover that God is strong. And so God gets the victory. And in the next chapter, we find Gideon and his 300 soldiers in hot pursuit of two of the Canaanite kings from Midian who are running for their lives. Um, As they are tracked, the kings left Israel, they cross over the Jordan River out of Israel, and they come to the town of Sukkoth. Uh, Gideon and his troops uh, chase, uh, and they're exhausted, and they're hungry. And so Gideon asked the people of Sukkoth to feed his troops, but they refused to. Now, uh, commentators will say their, their refusal probably wasn't because they didn't like Israel. It was more likely that they wanted to stay neutral. They didn't want to help Israel and then have those kings regain their troop strength and come back and punish them for helping Israel. So they were just trying to, to not support anybody in the midst of that. But in response, Gideon promises to punish the people of Sukkoth when they catch the kings. In the very next town they come to, uh, it's called Peniel, uh, the same thing happens. Gideon asked for help, the people refused, and Gideon promised to punish them. Now, honestly, uh, Gideon's anger does make some sense. Gideon and his troops were exhausted and hungry. You know what they call that? They were hangry. That's right. You ever been hangry? Yeah, yeah. You, you know, when you're tired and when you're hungry, you get hangry. So that's what's going on. But, but it, it turns out that really... They're more than hangry, especially Gideon, because they eventually do catch the two kings. They return to both Sukkoth and Peniel, and Gideon makes sure that they punish the people of both of these towns, killing many of them. Now, you got to say, you know, what's going on here? I mean, why did Gideon hurt and kill so many innocent people? Because the punishment doesn't fit the offense. It's at this moment that we have to pause and ask ourselves, Are we seeing a crack in Gideon's character? Has the success of the previous battle, has it gone to his head? Now he thinks he can do anything at will. So when Gideon returns to Israel as the victorious leader who's defeated tens of thousands of uh, soldiers with only 300, he's famous. 
And uh, he's the victorious general returning from war, even though we know that God wanted to make sure that he got the glory and not Gideon and the 300. And he's seen, Gideon, he's seen as the savior of Israel now. And in fact, the people want to make him their king. And this is what we read. The Israelites say to Gideon, rule over us, you your son and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Now, this was exactly what God said could happen if Gideon and the people of Israel relied on their military troop strength. God said the people would boast about winning the victory instead of recognizing that God would do it. So God prophesied that the people and their leaders would say they defeated the enemy, not God. He prophesied that, in other words, that, that Israel would stop worshiping and honor, honoring God for what he had done, for, the, for saving them, for being their savior in this battle, and they would turn to a human to be their savior. But this is how Gideon responds. Gideon says, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Now, we all want to say, yes, Gideon, that's the right response. You go, Gideon. God gets the glory for the victory, so God is the king. God will rule over Israel. But in the very next breath, this is what we read. I do have one request, though, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. And the people said, we'll be glad to give them. And there the crack in Gideon's character now becomes a fisher. He has been seduced by his own success, by his own fame, and now by fortune that's come with it. And he asks for gold, and the gifts make Gideon a very wealthy man. Seduced by wealth and success, we read this. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town, All Israel prostituted themselves to worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. So do you see what Gideon's done? He's done what the Israelites had done years earlier when they made an idol out of gold and they started worshiping it, and now Gideon has done the same thing. He's made an ephod. Now, what's an ephod? An ephod was uh, part of what the high priest of Israel wore in the tabernacle, the the temporary temple that was uh, located in the town of Shiloh. So this was where uh, the Ten Commandments were kept. This is where uh, God was worshipped in Shiloh, and only the high priest wore that ephod, and that ephod was used to discern God's will for Israel in times of crisis. Now, when Israel asked Gideon to become their king, they're rejecting God. They're rejecting God as their Savior, and they're taking matters into their own hands, and and they're making their own Savior. They're saying, Gideon, we want you to be our Savior. We want you to be our king. We want a human king like all of the other nations have, instead of letting God be our king and our Savior. Now, the success of the battle had turned their heads away from God to be their Savior, And now they were following what all the other cultures were doing, having a human ruler. When Gideon decides to take that gold and make an ephod, this is what he's essentially doing. He's setting up in his own hometown 
arrival place of worship of God Almighty. He wants to encourage people to come to him for guidance, to see his hometown as the place where God can be found. Gideon has used God to consolidate his own position instead of using his position to serve and be used by God. And in doing so, he's turning Israel away from God. Gideon leads them away from God, and as the chapter closes on Gideon and his life, we see that he's become completely seduced by his own success, and he's led Israel away from God. In the last few verses of the chapter, it says that Gideon uh, ruled for 40 years in Israel, but it was a failed leadership. And after his death, it says Israel did not remember God anymore, that they ran now, not just after this place of worship that Gideon has set up, but they began to run after the false gods of the Canaanites. And unfortunately, Gideon's seduction by success leaves a legacy because one of his sons reveals another dark side of humanity. So that's the seduction of success that we're all susceptible to succumb to. But there's another thing that we're susceptible to. It's the perversion of power. In chapter 9, we meet Gideon's power-hungry son. His name is Abimelech. Gideon had 70 sons, but Abimelech is very much like his father. And Abimelech has an interesting name. Abimelech's name means, my father is king. Now, if you didn't want to be king, if you didn't think you were the king, why would you name your son, my father is king? All right? So... Gideon may have given lip service to that fact, but we see that he really saw himself as king. He wanted to rule over Israel. He wanted to take the place of God for Israel. And we see Gideon's character had a flaw that he wanted power. He was seduced by success and the praise of others. And we see this same flaw showing up in his son Abimelech. We read about that in chapter 9. So let's look at the first six verses. Uh, remember that uh, Gideon's uh, other name is Jerubel. So Abimelech, son of Jerubel, went to his mother's brothers in Shechem and said to them and to all his mother's clan, ask all the citizens of Shechem, which is better for you to have all 70 of Jerubel's son rule over you or just one man? Remember, I am your flesh and blood. When the brothers repeated all this to the citizens of Shechem, they were inclined to follow Abimelech for they said, he's related to us. They gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of baal Berith, and Abimelech used it to hire reckless scoundrels who became his followers. He went to his father's home in Ophrah and on one stone murdered his 70 brothers, the sons of Jerubel. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubel, escaped by hiding. Then all the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo gathered beside the great tree at the pillar in Shechem, to crown Abimelech king. Abimelech's desire for power perverts his view of justice and he uses his power to kill his brothers. Having killed almost all of his rivals, then Abimelech, who saw his father as the king, now allows himself to be crowned as the king of Shechem. Now, on a side note, remember the brother who escaped. His name was Jotham. This is interesting. Jotham's name means the Lord is perfect. 
So Abimelech means my father is king, and Jotham's name means the Lord is perfect. And so Jotham tries to get the people of Shechem to see their sins and to turn back to God. But that's not something they want to do. They want a human king, and they're not changing their minds, and they're not going to repent, and they're not going to turn back to God. And under Abimelech's rule, life in that part of Israel begins a downward spiral as animosity grows. It grows between Abimelech and the people of Shechem, and they begin to fight with one another, and Abimelech fights to keep his power at all costs. Abimelech was so power-hungry that not only did he kill his 70 brothers, he also killed many of the people of Shechem. He even went out and poured salt over all of their fields so that they, it was ruined and no crops would be able to grow there, and then he kills a thousand people by setting fire to the building where they are all hiding from him in. When his power-hungry reign finally ends with his death, we read these concluding thoughts. Thus God repaid the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his father by murdering his 70 brothers. God also made the people of Shechem pay for all their wickedness, the curse of Jotham, son of Jerubel, came on them. We see that Abimelech perverted the power that he was given. And God punishes him for this misuse of power. And God punishes the people of Shechem who have also turned away from him. Ultimately, what we see in these two chapters that sort of come to a conclusion about the, the history of Gideon is, is that Gideon's life and his legacy through his sons are marred by his thirst for success and power that drove both him and his son to do things that would profit them, that would do things that would honor them, that would do things that would make them successful instead of saying, listen, I've been given this power, this prestige, this success for this moment. Why not for my sake, but for God? To God be the glory. But he didn't say that. Gideon's life reveals the dark side of our humanity. The fact that we can all be seduced by an experience of success. That we can all pervert the power that has been given to us instead of stewarding those things in God-honoring ways. Think about that. We all, at some point, are given some amount of success, some amount of power, some amount of prestige. Is it for our glory or is it for God's glory? How will we use it? So I want to jump from the story of Gideon to our story. I want to talk about the calling of a Christ follower. Israel needed a king. They didn't need a human king like Gideon. They needed God to be their king. They needed a king who would be loving and caring and help them move in the direction that would be best for them. But they forfeited following God as their king. And they followed a failed human being who was susceptible to seduction of success and the perversion of power. 
As I said, all of us are susceptible to those two things. But we've been given a king, a king who is Jesus for us to follow, who is our savior, who will save us from our own sinfulness and from our own mistakes. In fact, he serves us to the point where he is willing to die. Willing to die for us and for all of humanity. Jesus is the servant leader king who models for us what it looks like both to be someone who has been given power and prestige and success and also someone who is to be given the glory and the honor. Let me remind you what we read in the book of Philippians about Jesus. Paul writes, You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Scripture says we're supposed to have that same attitude. When we have that attitude, we put success in its right position. When we have that attitude of a servant, we put the power that's been given to us in the right perspective. It says Jesus did not think that equality with God was something to cling to. It says he gave up his divine privileges and he took the humble position of a slave and he was born a human being. He experienced everything that you and I experienced. But he wasn't seduced by earthly success. He didn't pervert the power he was given because he knew that God had sent him on a mission, and that mission was to make sure that we knew the way to God and the only way that we would be able to see that was that our sins would be paid for and that we would understand that we have a God who is our Savior, who will save us not only for eternity, but will save us from ourselves in this life so that we can live for Him and honor Him and glorify Him. As followers of Jesus Christ, if you're given a modicum of success, if you're given some power, if you're given some prestige, if, if you're given something, think of it this way. How can I use this to serve God like Jesus did? How can I use the leadership gift to be a servant leader, to point people to God? How can I use uh, the, the financial blessings that God has given me to further his kingdom? How can I use the success in my job to care for my employees or the people I work for like God cares for me? How can I use what's been given to me for the glory of God Almighty? You know, we've been given so much in life, and it's God's calling on us to leverage the blessings that we've been given for his glory. Now, the problem is we sort of fall into a comparison trap. Well, he's got more than I do. She's got a greater leadership gift than me. But, but here's the deal. Accept what you've been given. Use it for the glory of God. That's all God asks of us is to leverage the gifts, the blessings, Whatever God has placed into our possession, leverage it for his glory, for his kingdom, 
not for your glory, not for your power, not for your prestige. We're supposed to consider Jesus, and that needs to be our attitude of how we use what God has blessed us with. Unlike Gideon, Jesus didn't see himself as equal with God. He gave up his privileges. He took the position of a slave, and he obeyed God's will. And in doing so, he secured our salvation. He secured salvation for anybody who would say that I believe in Jesus Christ and want to follow him. Jesus explained his attitude this way. In the Gospel of Mark, uh, we read these words, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of God will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. There's so much there. Whoever wants to be my disciple... Jesus is speaking. If you want to be my disciple, you need to deny yourself and you need to take up your cross and follow me. That's the sign of success as a follower of Jesus Christ. In whatever blessings that God has bestowed on your life, are you taking up your cross, the cross of Jesus Christ, being a servant of Christ in wherever God has positioned you, in whatever place in life, whether you're retired or whether you're active in work, whether you're a student in school or you're using your gifts as a stay-home parent, are you using the influence, the power, the position to take up your cross and follow Jesus? As Christ followers... Power and position and prestige should not be something that we seek for ourselves. We, we should seek to deny ourselves and our personal will, and we take up our cross, which is to follow God's will and follow Jesus. And if God blesses us with power or with position or with prestige, then we should take great care to use it for God's glory and the good of others. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells a parable about servants who know the will of their master. And he concludes with these words, For everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. So here's the deal. A lot of us look at our lives and say, wow, I haven't been given much. I haven't been entrusted with much. And let's be honest, that's a self-centered way to look at your life. As followers of Jesus Christ who uh, live in an affluent nation, in an affluent part of the country, regardless of how much you make and whether you think you made enough, you have been blessed with so much in this world. 
But as followers of Jesus Christ, you have been blessed with so much more spiritually. You, if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, you've been given the promise of eternal life and you've been entrusted with the good news of Jesus Christ to share with other people and to live in a way that points people to him. And so we have to ask ourselves, we've been given much. Are we using it in a way that glorifies God? This morning I started off with some questions about success and power and prestige. And I told you that story about uh, three pastors, Chuck Templeton, Bron Clifford, and Billy Graham, all who began serving God at the same time. And while Templeton and Clifford were seduced by their own success and how they, and they perverted the power of their platforms, Billy Graham was going in the opposite direction. In 1948, Billy had a team of three other men who served with him when they went out and did their evangelistic meetings and shared the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those four men were Cliff Barrows, George Beverly Shea, and Grady Wilson. Spending so much time together preparing for and serving at these evangelistic meetings, these men began to do life together, and they would spend some of their free time talking about their lives and talking about the challenges that they faced as being traveling evangelists that went all around the country and all around the world. And at one point in their lives, while they were in Modesto, California, leading meetings, they were talking about their lives and the challenges They made a decision. They made a decision that they were going to protect themselves from the seduction of success, and they were going to protect themselves uh, from the temptation to pervert the power that they had been given. And those four men resolved that they would live lives of the highest integrity and morality that they could. Why? For the sake of Jesus Christ and the spread of the gospel. They made four resolutions that weekend, and it became known as the Modesto Manifesto within their inner circle. And these were the four things they resolved to do. First, they resolved to maintain the highest level of financial integrity in their ministries. And one of the ways that they did that was they would downplay the offerings that their ministries were able to receive so that they could continue to travel and share the good news of Jesus Christ. Second, they agreed to maintain the highest level of sexual morality, even to the point of doing things so that they would avoid the appearance of evil. Now, some of you may know this as the, the Billy Graham rule. It's uh, received some, some bad press uh, in the past year, uh, but l- let me share Billy Graham's own words. He writes, From that day on, I did not travel, meet, or eat alone with a woman other than my wife. Now, some people say, well, that's rather puritanical. Yeah, to a degree it is. But he put limits on himself because he knew himself. And he wanted to honor God, and he wanted to avoid the appearance of evil. He wasn't saying anything about the opposite sex. He wasn't saying anything about others. He was saying, listen, I'm going to do this. I'm going to limit my freedom for the glory of God and the honor of the gospel. The third thing they resolved to do was to openly cooperate with local churches. Now, that doesn't sound like a big deal, but you need to know that at that time in the history of Christianity in the United States, these evangelists were seen as competing with local churches, and Billy Graham and his group of of men changed the model. 
they would not go and have a meeting unless a hundred churches and their pastors invited them to come. Why? Because that said from the get-go that they were partnering together. And the fourth thing that they did was they agreed to be honest in reporting and advertising the success of their ministry. It's an embarrassing little fact that in church world, sometimes we joke about pastor math. Pastor math is oftentimes that people inflate the numbers of their attendance of people who come to Christ. You know, uh, I've been known to joke that if there's a woman pregnant, we'll count two people, okay? You know, it's just, just that idea. And so they said, listen, we're going to maintain complete honesty and integrity with the number of people who come to faith, with the number of people who attend our evangelistic meetings. We're going to do all of this to honor God. So let's go back to ourselves. The desire for success and power is a normal human experience. But those desires need to be kept in the proper perspective for all of us who are followers of Jesus. We need to remember Jesus' words and remember that whatever God has blessed us with is not for our glory. It's for his glory. And it's supposed to be used in a way that furthers his will and grows his kingdom. Like Billy Graham did, I encourage you to do whatever it takes to put those natural human desires in their proper perspective. And if that means putting boundaries around those, like the Modesto Manifesto, then that's okay. As followers of Jesus Christ, it's okay for us to limit our freedom for the glory of God and the furthering of his gospel. Jesus did it for us so that we could be saved for eternal life and to know him in this life. So I've given you a lot to think about today. So I want to pray for you. And actually, I want to invite you into that prayer time. So I'm going to begin this prayer, and then I'm just going to go silent and let you talk to God about the challenges of being faithful to Him in life. So let's pray. Father, we thank You for the love that You give to each one of us. Lord, we thank You for all that You've done to help us grow as followers of Jesus. And now, Lord, we ask that You would help us be fully devoted followers that if we have to limit our freedom for your glory and for your honor, if we have to put uh, boundaries around our, our natural human desires for your glory, Lord, help us do that. So hear our own prayers as we talk about this. Lord, thank you for the example that you've shown us. May we follow in your footsteps as your sons and daughters. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. It is our sincere hope that it has blessed you. For more information, visit our website at www.valleybrook.cc.